Welcome to the Disability Parenting Podcast, where stories unite, community thrives, and validation reigns for parents raising children with disabilities. I am your host, Lexi Emery, and I am thrilled to have you here with us today. I am going to be doing a solo episode today. I am going to be telling you all our origin story. So this is going to be a little bit about finding out we were pregnant, diagnosis day, what our hospital stay was like in the beginning, and then just kind of where we're at now. I am extremely excited to share this all with you. I think it will be a great episode to reference when starting the podcast or just to learn a little bit more about us. All right, I'm going to jump right in and tell you guys about finding out we are pregnant. So this part is relevant just because it's a really beautiful, redemptive story. Um, I actually had a miscarriage with our first at 16 weeks, which was devastating and very, very difficult for me. And after that, I needed to take a break and I just had a lot of anxiety and anticipatory anxiety about being pregnant and what that would be like again. And I was very nervous that I was just going to be terrified our next pregnancy, but something really wonderful happened and we ended up finding out we were pregnant with our second on our first pregnancy's due date, which was just a really wonderful series of events because I was expecting the day of what would have been our due date to be a very challenging, sad, um, stressful day for me. But to find out we were pregnant on that day, which was a surprise, <laughs> was really wonderful. And I think just set the tone for that pregnancy. I went into that pregnancy um, after we found out with a weight off my chest and just feeling really confident and excited, which I was not expecting. I thought I would be terrified. So anyways, I found out we were pregnant and all was going relatively well other than I was extremely ill with just morning, afternoon, night, middle of the night sickness. I was throwing up nonstop Uh, for about the first, gosh, seven to 20 weeks. Um, Yeah, so that was rough, but otherwise um, everything looked good. We were experiencing what I thought was a very typical pregnancy. And then all of that changed at our 20-week anatomy scan. So we went to get our anatomy scan done at um, an MFM's office. That was just how it worked with. I was with a midwife in OB practice, and they sent out all the anatomy scans to an MFM's office. And I remember my husband and I were so excited to find out the gender that day. We both took the day off from work. We were expecting it to be just like the most exciting, (laughs) fun day because we were going to go on like a little date and – open the envelope that said the gender and just have like a sweet day to ourselves. And we were so excited. (laughs) Um, Spoiler alert, that did not happen. But anyways, we went to our anatomy scan early in the morning and I hadn't had an anatomy scan before, so I didn't know exactly what to expect. But I remember the tech scanning, 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 and thinking that this is like a long appointment. and But I didn't have any frame of reference, so I wasn't concerned off the bat. But eventually our ultrasound tech said, hey, I am having a tough time finding the gender. 
I am going to step out and see if the doctor can take a look, see if they can help me figure it out, and I'll be back. And she left the room. And I remember (laughs) at the time being just like so distraught that we might not find out the gender because I thought that was the worst possible thing. I was so bummed and just, I remember telling my husband, like, can you imagine if we can't find out the gender today? That would be the worst. Looking back, it is laughable because that was the least of our worries that day. But yeah, so she left and we sat in that room for probably 25, 30 minutes. And I remember like towards the end being like frustrated because I thought we were forgotten or I don't know. I was just so excited to learn more about our baby and I'm not the most patient person. So anyways, eventually we get a knock on our door and somebody else comes in, not our ultrasound tech, and she introduces herself as an MFM and um, she sits down and I was sitting on like the exam table and my husband was sitting on the chair. She said, why don't you sit with your husband? And I was like, okay, and sat down and she looked at us and said, I am so sorry to tell you this, but your baby is very sick. And when she said that, I wasn't initially like devastated because I didn't know what that meant. I was very confused by the word sick and what that meant, but I knew the way she said it, it was bad. Um, So I was like, well, what do you mean by sick? And she said, we're seeing a lot of anomalies and just a lot of things that are not typical with your baby. And instantly I started bawling. I went right back to that place of our first loss and what that felt like to just experience pain when you're pregnant. And it's a dark place to be in. So yeah, just started crying. And once I was able to gather myself a bit, she explained what she was seeing. So looking back, none of this made sense. Like the word she's about to explain now, it it's like I could tell you in depth every, you know, medical term and what it means and the frequency. And I can just go on and on about these things. So they make sense now, but at the time it was like another language. And what she told us was that our baby was first of all measuring very small, had very um, short long bones. Uh, At the time she told us our baby had clubbed feet. She told us our baby had fluid behind their neck, which is a marker for a lot of Um, different conditions. And then our baby was also full of fluid. So under the skin, uh, there's fluid in the chest, abdominal cavity, um, surrounding the lungs, basically just everywhere. And she told us that it was a very severe case that's called hydrops. Um, And the fluid behind the baby's neck is called cystic hygroma. So she said both both of those were severe and pointed to either a genetic condition, a chromosomal abnormality, um, a heart defect, things like that. And I remember thinking like genetic and chromosomal and, you know, hearing those words and thinking, well, wait, those parents who raise children with things like that are, are special parents. Those are parents that 
have a very soft, sweet voice and abundance of patience and are, you know, this rare breed of parents. And I am not that. I pictured like, you know, Miss Honey from Matilda. Like those are the parents that I imagined were equipped to handle and be able to raise a child with a disability. And like I said before, I am not particularly patient. I am sarcastic. I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like a bad person, but I didn't think I fit the mold. So fast forward to what I think now. I don't think parents are equipped or not equipped to be raising children with disabilities. I think we are regular parents doing the absolute best we can for our children who we love and would do anything for. I think that we learn as we go and gain the skills we need to be great parents raising children with disabilities, but it's not an innate trait you either have or you don't. So that is something I have learned over these last few years. So after she told us about everything that was going on with our baby, she had mentioned that um, likely this is chromosomal, genetic, or heart condition. And she went on to further explain that the high drops particularly was so severe that she didn't expect our baby to survive pregnancy. And again, that was just another blow of like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose this baby again. I can't go back there and just kind of went numb from that point. And a lot of what she said after that, I, I can't recall, but what she did next was phenomenal. Looking back, she said, look, I just gave you a lot of information. I'm going to give you options for next steps. And then I'm going to give you guys some some space. I have a, you know, a couple of clients I need to, or patients, I should say, that I need to get to. So I'm going to have you guys go in my office. You can take as much time as you need, cry, hug, process, and come up with a list of questions. I'll come back and we'll continue this chat. So she, you know, kind of told us what our options were, which included termination to do an amniocentesis to figure out like what like exactly what's going on with our baby if they can tell so that's where they stick a needle through your like belly into your amniotic sac take out some amniotic fluid and they're able to test um concretely for like some of these genetic and chromosomal issues and my husband and I looked at each other and knew termination wasn't an option. I mean, at this point I was 20 weeks and I could feel our baby kicking. And to me, I just wanted to give our baby every chance to fight. And so, you know, we told her our thoughts on that. And then we decided we did want to go through with the amniocentesis. I'm a very type A person. I combat my anxiety with knowledge. I love to just be very aware of what is happening. And for me, that felt like it would be really helpful. Um, so we decided to go through the amniocentesis. We actually did it like right then and there, which was <laughs> intense and not intense all at the same time because I had so much adrenaline and I was so numb from everything, like emotionally, that I don't remember it being painful or horrible at all. And she had told us, you know, I'm going to ship this off. Hopefully we'll get results back in she said one to two weeks and that felt like an eternity when she told us that. But next we just went into that room like she had offered and did exactly what she said, cried, hugged, processed, um, and then came up with a huge list of questions. And 
I share this part of the story because I am really, really grateful for how we were treated that day and how we ended up receiving our diagnosis. And I know a lot of families are not as fortunate as us. I hear just some like horror stories of how parents are treated that day or receive their diagnosis. And I thought it was just a really wonderful way to give us some space. And we also, you know, kind of put pieces back together later. And when she, the ultrasound tech told us that she wasn't able to find the gender, that was really her buying time um, to, you know, look at everything with the MFM. And I don't think they could find the gender at the time. It wasn't a lie or anything, but I'm really grateful. She didn't say, look, I'm seeing a lot of issues here. I'm going to go grab the doctor, hang tight. Like that would have been horrible and torture (laughs) to wait in that space. And I'm just really grateful they protected us from that. So I just want to share those details because the way we were treated that day made a big difference. And I will have an episode dedicated to this. So look out for that in the future. But anyways, after we asked all of our questions, we headed out the door. And I remember the last thing our MFM told us was tonight, go home, take care of each other, eat your favorite food, have ice cream, watch the movie that makes you the most happy and just love on each other. And I could like tear up thinking about that because it was what we needed to hear. And it's exactly what we did. And of course, it was still such a hard night. But yeah, we just were able to take care of ourselves as much as we could in that time. So anyways, um, the next morning was a Saturday. We were out like grocery shopping at the store and I got a call on my phone and it was like pretty early, like eight or nine. And I was like, huh, that's weird. Like who would be calling me this early? on a Saturday, but I decided to answer it. And it was our MFM. And she said, are you guys in a place where you can talk? And we're like, "Um, no, we're in the bread aisle. Give us a sec. (laughs) So we ran out to our car and she said, okay, I was able to get your sample off last night and they were able to run the results this morning. I have um, your results for the amniocentesis, which is wild because I've never heard of it happening that fast. She had told us one to two weeks, so we were not expecting it, but obviously so grateful to find out, you know, on the earlier side. And she said, all right, so have you ever heard of Turner syndrome? And my husband and I looked at each other and we both, you know, shook our head and we're like, nope. She said, okay. So your baby has Turner syndrome and she explained that Turner syndrome is something that only affects females. So you're having a girl. So that is, that was our gender reveal. Um, Obviously not as exciting as what we had planned for, but it was really cool just to, I don't know, it it made our baby feel more real, which is silly because, you know, it doesn't technically make sense, but to us, it just felt more concrete and was easier to conceptualize everything, knowing the gender. So anyways, it was just exciting to hear that it was a girl. And this is like such a bittersweet call because that was like so exciting. But then she's like, okay, let me explain what Turner syndrome is and your prognosis. So essentially, I'll give you guys just like a little brief overview of Turner syndrome. So 
Um, our daughter has classic Turner syndrome, so she's missing her second X chromosome. So she explained that's what our daughter had, and that's, you know, what it is technically. How that can display can be very, very like a broad spectrum. So she said some babies have severe heart defects, kidney anomalies, you know, just a wide array of medical conditions. She told us for girls with Turner syndrome, it's common characteristic to have extremely short stature. Um, A lot of them have webbed necks. So she explained that is because of the cystic hygroma. So the fluid behind her neck, Um, when they're born, that fluid eventually goes away and there's extra skin there. Um, so she said that's very common and would likely be the case with our daughter because she had such a large cystic hygroma. So she explained that. She explained that typically they are not impacted intellectually. They can have some learning differences, but that they're typically not impacted intellectually. What else? Yeah. So she explained, you know, again, a bunch of other things that could be the case, could not be the case, which is a lot to take in knowing you just kind of have no idea what your baby will have in terms of all of those descriptions. But she said, you know, if your baby can make it to birth, your baby, you know, has potential for a very typical life and um, with the right medical care, a very healthy life. And that was exciting to hear. But then directly followed up, she explained, but your daughter's high drops and cystic hygroma is so severe that we, again, like regardless of the condition or anything, we don't expect her to survive. So essentially there was so much fluid buildup around her heart and lungs that there was no space for her heart and lungs to grow. So I was such a wild ride of a call because you're getting, you know, these details that are so up in the air, you're finding out the gender, you're still finding out that like likely this is not going to end well. And that is so much harder now that you know, you know, it's a little girl and oh yeah, it's still emotional for me to talk about as you can tell. But um, yeah, we got off the phone and just <laughs> immediately Googled as much as we could. And yeah, that was how we received our diagnosis. And looking back, I'm really, again, so grateful with how we were cared for and how it was presented to us. And yeah, so the plan of action from there was to do a heartbeat check once a week, because again, they anticipated that her heartbeat would eventually stop because there was no more room to grow. So you want to talk about anxiety. Those appointments were so stressful because our daughter had so much fluid, she didn't move much. And so I couldn't rely on a movement to confirm that she was still okay. I really didn't know until we would go to those appointments to have her heartbeat checked. And so I'll get into that into a bit. But so, yeah, the plan was to do that. And then every four weeks to do like an in-depth ultrasound. And um, we were going to do an echo. So like an in-depth ultrasound of her heart. But she said likely this will only... There'll only be a few more weeks. She doesn't anticipate her, you know, making it very long. So it was just so hard mentally to process, like having hope and going to these appointments and being realistic and listen to what is being told to us. But I don't know, for me, from day one after we received that diagnosis, I feel like I just had this 
peace that she was going to be okay. Now, that doesn't mean a million dark anxiety-filled thoughts crept in. I still had those, but like deep, deep, deep down, I didn't lean the direction of she's going to pass away and it's inevitable. Like I just didn't feel that in my heart. And and I think I was, you know, trying to protect myself from going back to that place. But anyways, they basically told us there was nothing they could do to help her in utero. There was no, we couldn't drain the fluid. We couldn't, you know, there wasn't really anything. So it's just a wait and see game. So that was super hard to hear. But yeah, so fast forward a little bit. We went to those appointments once a week and each time her heart was beating strong. Each time they were shocked that she was still there. And at 24 weeks, so I should mention our anatomy scan was at 20 weeks. At 24 weeks, we had the big like echo and checkup on our baby to see how she was doing. And that appointment went really poorly from receiving more bad news of just like, she is in rough, rough shape. She's not looking any better. She's, you know, I think she was in the second percentile for size, still full of fluid. Um, lungs were small, Ugh, all the stuff. So that was really hard because we had hope that like that would be the appointment. We got some good news and we did not. Um, so it wasn't until 20, I think it was 29 weeks. We went back in and again, everyone was just shocked. We were still pregnant. Um, she still had a heartbeat and we went into that 29 week appointment and the ultrasound tech, it was a male. And I remember he was scanning and he was just like, I don't know if giddy is the right word, but like there was an energy of not being bad. <laughs> and I, you know, they can't tell you anything. And I'm trying to look and see like, does anything look different? Is the, you know, fluid behind her neck still there? Is, you know, I don't know. It's hard because I don't know what the heck I'm looking at, but, and I couldn't tell, but our MFM came in and she sat down. Oh my gosh. I have the biggest smile on my face right now. She sat down and she said, okay, I cannot believe I'm telling you this, but all of your baby's high drops has resolved. It's gone. So all the fluid surrounding her heart, lungs, abdomen. She said there was a teeny tiny bit under her skin still. And um, she still had the fluid behind her neck, but she said the hydrops has resolved. She's like, I have seen this very, very, very rarely. Um, and certainly not this late in pregnancy. And she said, so what this means is your baby has a chance of survival. And I'm going to send you next door to the big children's hospital and you're going to be staying there for the rest of your pregnancy. And we're, we're going to really, really hope for the best. And she said, I have hope. Um, that was the first time we had been told there was any hope at all. And we were in shock, like just could not believe it. It was such a strange day because you go in expecting at this point, horrible news, just because that's all we'd ever heard. And to be told the opposite was absolutely unreal. So we did. We went next door to the children's hospital and they were expecting us. They had a room ready for us. And 
uh, like I was immediately hooked up and admitted and I feel so blessed because it was a very high level fetal care center. So this is a center designed for moms and families who have very complex diagnosis and medical needs for their babies in utero. They stay there and then they deliver there. And so my room was like a hotel room. It was big. It was had tons of space because these moms end up staying there for weeks and weeks and weeks. It had a gorgeous bathroom. So, and again, I was just so happy to be there. I could have been shoved into a broom closet and I wouldn't have cared. I was just happy to be there because my baby finally had a chance. And so, yeah, I remember I sent my sweet husband home and I was prepared to be there. So this is 29 weeks. I was planning on being there, you know, I figured till 34, 35 weeks. Like I knew our, we probably wouldn't make it full term, but I sent my husband home to get all my things, <laughs> as much clothing as I could explain to him, all of my favorite, you know, little, you know, my coffee mug and my favorite blanket and you know, face masks and nail polish and all these things that I was like planning on just needing while I'm there forever. And yeah, he was so sweet and went and got everything. And so yeah, spoiler alert, I was only there for seven days. We ended up delivering my baby at 30 weeks. And um, that was wild because I was not expecting her to come so early. And she didn't, I shouldn't say she didn't come early on in terms of like going into labor or anything like that. But um, I was getting an echo done for her. My sister-in-law was with me. And during the echo, she was like, I do, the, the text said, I do not like what's happening right now. And we're going to get you back to your room and have them hook you up to the monitor. They hooked me up and my sister-in-law were sitting there just kind of like, I wasn't stressed. I was just kind of like, okay, well, we'll see what's happening. My husband, I should note, was at work. So it was just me and my sister-in-law. And next thing you know, they are saying, we need to get you undressed. And um, we're doing a C-section right now. The baby's heart is dropping and we do not like what we're seeing it's time it's time to go right now and i was like oh my gosh like whoa this is happening i can't explain it because again i think i've made this clear by nature i'm an anxious person i am a warrior i'm a planner like being sprung things on me is not my cup of tea but i had this intense calm and peace come over me and they're like undressing me and you know, doing all these things. And they say, call your husband, tell him to get here, but tell him not to speed. Tell him to be calm. Like they're telling me all these things. I was like, guys, my husband is like most level-headed, like smart driver. Like we're good. We're good. I promise. And so I'm telling my husband all these things like you need to get here, but like drive safely. Everything's okay. I don't think you're going to make it. He was about... 30 minutes away, but this was rush hour. So like anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour away. And so 
thankfully, my sister-in-law was in school, in nursing school at the time. So this was like up her alley. This didn't freak her out from like the medical side. And they said, you want to come back with her? And I was like, yes, please. Like I need someone to come back with me. And we're really close. And she was like a huge source of comfort for me. And um, so she scrubbed up and <laughs> got to come in with us. And they had our daughter out. And I believe it was like 12 minutes between me calling my husband and our baby being out. It was insanely fast. I was able to stay awake during the surgery, which I was so thankful for. I really did not want to be put under and miss everything. But yeah, so our baby was born and she was in not good shape. She was not breathing. She needed to be resuscitated. I did not know that at the time, thankfully. Um, but I didn't get a, you know, no no skin to skin or anything like that. They just kind of plopped her up over the sheet, showed me, and she was the tiniest, sweetest little peanut. And I feel like the second I saw her, it was the first time I let out a true exhale in 10 weeks. <laughs> Um, and I started hysterically crying just out of love and disbelief. And then I started to get like a little more scared and um, things like that. But um, I was taken like very good care of during the surgery and felt very comforted by the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and all that. So that helped. But uh, my sister-in-law went off with our daughter and got all of her first pictures and videos. And oh gosh, I could just melt at the level of relief I felt when I knew she got to do that. I didn't think that was going to happen. And I have those pictures now and it's one of my favorite moments is like realizing we had pictures and things like that. So yeah, so they finished up the C-section. My mom randomly showed up. I don't, I, somebody must've called her. She showed up in the OR, which is so funny to me to look back on, especially because this is all pre-COVID. <laughs> she just like <laughs> showed up um, as I was getting sewn up. And then my husband came um, and he got to be with our daughter right away. Obviously she went right to the NICU and he got to see her and be the first, you know, to hold her and, or not hold her. I, whoa, definitely did not hold her. He was able to like touch her, like hold her little hand and stuff like that. But then I went back up to recovery. And I remember one of the hardest parts of that day is my mom and my brothers and my sister-in-law and my husband all got to see our daughter before I did, which I, at the time, you know, I was grateful she wasn't just sitting up there alone. But I remember crying, saying, like, she's not going to know I'm her mom. She's going to hear everyone else's voice first and not know who I am. I'm going to be like chopped liver by the time I get up to her. And I remember my mom saying, sweetheart, she will know it's you. I promise. And and of course she did. But yeah, I remember just being like <laughs> so distraught over that. So I did get to see her that day, which I feel really grateful for. I know a lot of traumatic births like that. The mom isn't able to see the baby. And yeah, so I was able to see her and it was a really surreal, numb experience, which I kind of hate to admit. I wish it wouldn't have been that way, but I think I was in shock. And yeah, I just 
couldn't process what was happening. So I wasn't crying or elated. I just was numb when I met her. And of course, over time, like that changed so much, but it was just a lot to take in that day. And anyway, so that is how our little sweetheart was born. It was intense. It was fast. It was wild. And from there, I will speed up this storyline a little bit. Um, just so that this isn't the world's longest podcast episode. But from there, um, our daughter was in the NICU for 95 days. And our NICU journey was, as all parents describe, a roller coaster, a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Um, I feel like I was lucky in the sense that when I went to the NICU every day, I was so happy. Because we had been told for so long our daughter wouldn't survive. So walking into the NICU every day, I felt so thrilled she made it. So I had this kind of like buoyancy and just joy in the NICU that I don't know is always the case. Because a lot of times I think parents, when they're expecting a typical delivery and a typical you know, birth and newborn stage to go to the NICU is like a huge like hardship and just unexpected event. But for us, it was the opposite. We'd been told that would never happen. And so to be there, it was just incredible. But obviously that did not take away from what was so hard about it. And yeah, what the hard part was, you know, being postpartum and experiencing what I now know was postpartum anxiety and I would even say postpartum OCD, but I had no idea really at the time. I was seeing a therapist, but I feel like I wasn't totally honest with how I was handling everything. And again, five years out, I wish I could redo that. But yeah, and then just her medical journey was a roller coaster. She was intubated for quite a while. She had very like high medical needs, a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, it was it was tough. Um, it was tough to be a first time mom, learning how to take care of a baby. Um, our NICU staff was incredible, and they were so good at you know having me do the cares and changing her diaper and bathing her when she was ready. I mean, in the very beginning, that was not an option, but. They were really good at supporting that aspect of things. and But yeah, learning how to pump. And I had a crazy oversupply, so I was like pumping nonstop. I left the NICU with a wagon full of breast milk, which is such a blessing. Not complaining, but it was intense. Like I was on the pump every two to three hours all day and all night. It was a lot. So yeah, it was just... A journey, you know, it was a lot. But after 95 days, she was released from the NICU. And I'll never forget, this is just like such a cool moment. The day we were leaving the NICU, our MFM was just happened to be there down in the lobby at the children's hospital. And we got to, you know, tell her we're going home today. And like it was such a full circle, beautiful moment. And yeah, I'll just never forget that. And yeah, so from there, her first year home was a lot. She came home with a G-tube and on oxygen. She was on oxygen, I think it was exactly 300 days. So that whole first year, we were, you know, 
bring in tanks and her G2 pump and her oxygen monitor on her everywhere we went. And again, similar to our NICU story, I had this still this like sense of joy and just elation that she was here. And again, that didn't counteract all the hard parts and what was so challenging about it. But I'm really grateful I had that like high in that um, adrenaline that first year. And it was it was a lot. It was a lot of getting her into therapies and getting her just medically where she needed to be. So still a lot of appointments, things like that. And yeah, I'm trying to think what else that first year. Yeah, was just a lot of getting used to things. And she was with her physical milestones pretty behind. So a lot of PT and OT. And she's actually had a speech therapist that whole first year too to work on like oral aversions and all of that because she was on a G-tube and she has always been able to take food by mouth. But I think the combination of being intubated and she had severe reflux the first two and a half years of her life and she was vomiting all the time. And that created like a big oral aversion. So working really hard on feeding and things like that. So yeah, that's just a little sneak peek into the first year. And then I'm going to skip forward to, so this was 2019. I'm going to skip forward to 2022. And that is when we received her autism diagnosis. So that was a lot to process because we had been dealing with so much of the medical side of things when we started to realize that she was presenting very different than typical kids in terms of like sensory experiences and aversions. And um, with our daughter, she developed a lot of like typical language and then lost it and used to point to things and lost it. And that was just, it was so hard to know you know, is this because she was a preemie or is this because of Turner syndrome or is this something else? And it became pretty clear after an appointment we went to with a Turner syndrome clinic where they had tons of her specialists. She has like nine specialists and they all come to meet with you at one time, not like all the same doctors at the same time, but the same day. So it's a rotation of doctors coming in, which is wonderful in the sense that you don't have to go to nine different appointments, but obviously a very intense day. And at the end of that appointment or at that day, we had a psychiatrist meet with us, which is part of the Turner Syndrome Clinic. And she explained after, you know, a lot of questions and observing our daughter, she explained, you know, I am seeing a lot of things that indicate autism. And at the time that was not on my radar. I did not know anything about autism. I I knew our daughter was presenting differently than her same age peers and things like that. But I didn't realize it could have been something more than that. And so when she brought that up, um, it was wild and honestly just a really hard, devastating day. I hesitate to say that because I don't feel that way now about her having autism, But that day, it was really hard because essentially what happened is I went home and we Googled autism and my husband and I both were like, "Uh, yeah, 
100%. And so then it was just the battle of getting the diagnosis so that we could get her the support she needed. So yeah, so it was it was tough when we did eventually receive that diagnosis because it felt like we had processed and grieved and gone through all of the medical stuff with her. And this felt like going through everything all over again, but in a different way. Yeah, it was tough because with the medical side of things, in my mind, I'm like, those things we can, you know, fix. (laughs) You know, things can be done. Surgeries can be performed. They are essentially fixable. With autism, it felt like this is lifelong and she's going to have such a challenging life and you know, all of these thoughts. Again, I do not feel that way now. We're a few years out. I feel completely differently, but I just want to be honest with how I was feeling because I know a lot of families who feel the same way. And I want this podcast to be a place where we can talk about what it was like to receive that diagnosis and and then also be able to talk about how we feel now. So I will fast forward. Our daughter is almost five. She still has a G-tube, but she is medically very stable. She, When she gets sick, she gets really sick. But yeah, she is healthy. And she is tiny and wonderful and perfect. And we love her so freaking much. I can't, I can't even put it into words how much we adore her. And yeah, we have been doing therapy and developmental preschool, and both of those things have helped her so, so much uh, with her autism. And it's been a lot of, you know, working on some of her sensory things and not in terms of like making her not have sensory issues, but like helping her cope with them and finding alternatives to, like I said, help her cope and manage things that are really hard for her. It's been a lot of us learning to advocate for her, a lot of her learning to advocate for herself. She was nonverbal for most of her life. I mean, she had words, but was really not able to communicate, you know, verbally or via sign language effectively to meet her needs for a long time. And that was extremely, extremely difficult because we just felt so often that we didn't know how to help her and we didn't know what she needed. And she was frustrated and we felt really defeated for a long time. And then we got the proper resources and plan in place for her and everything changed. She, and it changed fast. It changed within this change was about six months and she is speaking so much. It is unreal to me. Like I jump for joy and tear up just about every time something new comes out of her mouth, which is a lot. It's happening fast and it's incredible. And she's able to communicate her needs with an AAC device, which is a device that it's essentially an iPad with Um, these little squares that have icons on them and it's like, you know, designed very specifically for like a flow for them to be able to choose things like I want food, I want, you know, 
whatever it is they want. And then it opens up another screen of what food and she's able to choose. So yeah, she's able to communicate so many needs and wants and desires and be silly via her device and verbal language and sign language and just everything is clicking right now. Things are just starting to really shine for her. And it's been incredible to watch. We are so stinking proud of her. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else to share with you guys. Um, I'm sure I will share more in different episodes my journey of you know what this has all been like me for me in the stages of what I've gone through and where I'm at now versus where I was at when we got this diagnosis. Um, obviously, creating this podcast is huge for me. I mean, years ago when I came up with this concept, I was not ready at all to share these things because I was still so in the thick of it. And I am still. I'm still always on this journey and in this journey and learning and growing and pivoting and all of that. But I am in a really good place to be able to share a bit about our story and then have guests on and interview parents and professionals and yeah, just hopefully give back to the community that really helped me on this journey. And that community that has helped me so much, I mean, obviously among friends, family, and support groups, but the community that really helped me in this five-year span is podcasts. I had listened to a couple religiously for the last few years that have just been my saving grace of feeling known, feeling like, oh my gosh, that's my story too. And I am not the only one. And my hope is just that I can give that back to other parents going through this and to provide a little bit of that perspective being, you know, I am not far in this journey, but very different than, you know, the early days being five years out. So anyways, thank you all so much for joining me on my first solo episode today. To stay connected, be sure to follow me on Instagram at disabilityparentingpod. There I will be posting updates on future episodes, real and raw posts that are short to make you feel known. Also feel free to shoot me an email at disabilityparentingpod at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to explore or if you are interested in being a guest of the show. Again, thank you all so much for being a part of the Disability Parenting Podcast community. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes and remember, your story is our story. Until next time.